So Wednesday night, I was at our weekly prayer meeting here at the, the school building, and somebody had what I thought was a really great question. They said, you know, we always hear about God parting the Red Sea, but this week I was reading about the Jordan River being stopped up. How come we, we never talk about that? And I said, I know the answer, because Charlton Heston was not at the Jordan River. <laughs> I think about God's ability. He is all-powerful. I think of the shock and awe of his power in moments like that. And I don't know about you, but I believe in a God who is the same today as he was yesterday. He can still work in those shock and awe, miraculous ways. Amen? Amen. But as we continue in Esther, I think about how often he chooses to work in more subtle ways. How often he chooses to work in the seemingly mundane moments of our days and our lives. Mm -hmm. I think about that, and I think about something that happened to me this week. I had to get my suit dry clean because I had a funeral to do Friday morning, and I went to Colt Cleaners over there behind Fry's. And even though they had told me the day before, you need to have cash to pay, I was going to pick it up. I walked in there and said, oh, yeah, cash only. Uh, so I was forgetful, right? So I had to walk over to Fry's uh, to get something and get some cash back. So I started walking around the building, and as I did, I see an old friend who I hadn't seen in a while. He was walking up the parking lot, and I said, hey, Bob, how's it going, man? And I could see he was burdened. I could see something was weighing on his mind, and we got to talking there. He said, it's been hard. My, my wife's brother just committed suicide, and this weekend we're having a, a service for him. And he kind of poured out his heart a little bit there, and, and we prayed right there at Fry's. And I'd encourage you to pray for him, too. And I talked with him at the end, like, it's pretty neat how God creates divine appointments even at Fry's. But I think about, like, what I was thinking about. Maybe you'd like for your pastor, as you walk from... Uh, the dry cleaners to fries to be pondering the depths of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Like, how can he be fully God and fully man? But no, no, I was just thinking about chicken wings and cash back. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> but God had a plan. He had a plan for, for Bob and I to pray together. Maybe some of you wonder, how does a, a couple from Ohio that went to Bible college in Chicago, Carolyn and myself, how do you end up way out west in Arizona? Well, part of it happened through my grandfather's funeral in Ohio. We were in Chicago, and, and we were driving I-90 back there to get there. And I'm telling you what did not happen on I-90. We did not get a bright light from the sky. I said, Scott, Scott. Carolyn, why are you driving to Ohio? I want you in Arizona. That did not happen. What did happen as we were at my grandpa's funeral, and we were facing a choice in our education at that point. In order to graduate, I was a senior. You had to find a two-month internship in ministry somewhere. And it was at that funeral that one of the pastors at that church where we had been a part of said, hey, Lee, Lee Wiggins was your youth pastor here in Ohio, right? You know he's at a church out in Arizona called the Heights, right? Have you ever thought about calling him? 
I hadn't to that point. We called them, and, and the rest is history. That's often how God works, is it not? You've probably seen that in your own life. Those, those just moments in your life, a connection with this person here, this person there, he works to lead us. I saw it even at the, the funeral I did on Friday morning. There were two guests here at the 8.30 service who were at that, that service and came. I even had one lady who came up after because we had presented the hope of the gospel because the, the woman who passed away, she had written in her journal things like, we need to think about eternity more. Heaven is our homeland. I receive you, Jesus. So there was little doubt as to where she went. So we preached the gospel. And, and a woman came up afterwards, and, and she, said, she said, I believe in Jesus. I want you to do my funeral. I didn't even know what to say. Like, you can't say, call me when it's time. <laughs> but I thought, hey, God is opening up another door to share the hope of Jesus during a hard time for some family and friends. And wow, I did not see that coming. God is at work in the twists and turns of our daily schedules. And we've been talking about that in the book of Esther. Right? We've been studying what I, I like to call eschatology. You know, Daniel's preparing a study on Revelation. I said, you got the eschatology. I got the eschatology on Sunday mornings. But just a review of our eschatology. You remember what was going on. And if you're new with us, we'll catch you up. If you haven't read the book before, there was a wicked man named Haman in the Persian Empire described as the enemy of the Jews. And he hated the Jews so much that he went to Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, to get permission for a decree to go out to kill every Jew, man, woman, or child in the whole Persian Empire. Now, the carrying out of that decree was set for months in the future from where we find ourselves today. But you remember that Mordecai the Jew pleaded with Esther the Jew, who was queen of Persia, you need to plead with King Xerxes. And they had some back and forth about that, but she finally went. She finally took that step of faith and went to the king, got, got permission to speak. And when she got that audience with the king in his throne room, right when we want her to ask to save the Jews, she doesn't. She says, I want you and Haman to come to a feast tomorrow. And then they get to that feast, and we want her to pop the request out again, save the Jews, but she doesn't there either. She says, I want you to come to another feast tomorrow. And, and we're left wondering, why did Esther want this delay? And I can honestly tell you, we don't know for sure what Esther had in mind. What we do know, and we're going to see today in chapter 6, is that God had a plan in that strange delay between the two feasts. We're going to see, as J. Vernon McGee put it, I love this phrase. He, he said, God is the hand in the glove of human happenings. What does he mean by that? He means that without being the author of evil and without tempting us to evil, God is in control of all history. God had some work to do the night before that second feast. He wanted to raise Mordecai in the eyes of King Xerxes and begin to humiliate 
and bring down Haman, the enemy of the Jews. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 6, verse 1. And we've already kind of spoiled the story, right? We've told you how God's going to work, what he's going to do, what his goal is, raise Mordecai, bring Haman down. What I want us to do this morning is track God's finger as to how he does it. And just even in our hearts, praise him for his creativity, his thoughtfulness, his sovereignty in the events of human history. Look at the things he used. The first thing was a restless night for the king. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. Now, we're not told the human reason for this. Did he eat too much at the feast? Does he have indigestion? Is he pondering the weight of ruling such a vast empire? You know, the old adage, heavy is the head that wears the crown. We're not told the, the human reasons, but I know God was at work. I think about an old story I heard when I was a kid, and you probably did too, the princess and the pea. You remember how that little pea kept the princess awake? I want, I want to call this one the Persian king and the providence of God. Because God would be at work in this restless night. And I think about a verse in Psalm 121.4. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And I think about that. If, if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and you're like me, you, you've had some of those sleepless nights, haven't you? And what's our first reaction? Ugh, I just want to sleep. I got to get up early. And sometimes that is exactly what we need to do. Okay, we're, we're made for physical rest. God grants sleep to those he loves. But there are other times I've seen in my life and maybe you've seen in yours. I'm awake for a reason. I say, God, I can't sleep. What, what do you have for me? And he'll bring someone to mind to pray for. Or he'll lead me to a passage in scripture that our family needs at that exact moment. So don't discount that possibility. If he can work in the life of a pagan king through a restless night, surely he can work in the restless nights of his children. I want to go on to talk about how God used a requested reading that night. Couldn't sleep. What's he going to do? He's got lots of options as king, right? He's got a large harem. He could call for one of his ladies probably poetry, music, you name it. Bring in somebody to entertain the king, maybe some late night comedy. I don't know, but what does he choose? Because he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It's notes about kingdom happenings in Persia. Now, you got to think about the fact that Xerxes has been reigning 12 years himself. At this point, so there's likely at least 12 years of these if it's just his reign. But if there were chronicles there from his predecessors, it's hard to imagine how many scrolls there were. And what did they just happen to end up reading about? Either they started here or they read long enough to get to this fact. Verse 2 it was found written how Mordecai, the Jew, had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, 
who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. You remember, if you were with us in chapter 2, what happened. Mordecai the Jew was at the gate. He heard this assassination plot. He told Esther. Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. In chapter 2, verse 23 says, It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. One striking thing, that was five years earlier. Five years earlier, according to the chronology of the book of Esther. Now, I want to talk about how God used a reward delayed. Verse 3. The king's thankful for what Mordecai did. And he says, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said nothing. Nothing has been done for him. And the historian Herodotus tells us that's unusual for Persian kings. There are records even of this king, Xerxes, quickly and generously honoring someone who had done something on behalf of the kingdom. This delay was not typical for him. But what we're going to see is that delayed reward is also going to be used by God. Next, I want to look at the return of Haman to King Xerxes. Right on time. They're talking about this with Mordecai. And verse 4 says, the king said, who is in the court? Maybe he heard something. Maybe he's starting to think about this situation with Mordecai and wondering who can help him take care of things. Whatever the case, king says, who's in the court? Verse 4 says, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. We told you the scholars say this is more likely that sharp pole upon which Persians would impale someone. If you were with us last night, just a little bit of background on the night before, you remember Haman had had his first feast with Xerxes and Esther, and he left that feast feeling pretty big in his britches, right? Got to sit down not only with the king, but the queen. But then as soon as he stepped out, his whole mood changed. His balloon was popped because there's Mordecai. He wants Mordecai not only to bow before him, but to tremble in his presence. And Mordecai will do neither. And, and Haman was, was furious. So, so he went home and told his family about all the ups and downs. And his family said, we got an idea for you. Why don't you build a stake 75 feet high and ask the king to have him hanged on it? That's why Haman was there. Verse 5. The king's young men told the king, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Now I want you to watch how God used a rushed question from King Xerxes because Haman and Xerxes both had a lot on their mind. But before Haman could even speak, bringing up his question about putting Mordecai on a pole, the king asked a question. Verse 6, Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now I want to talk to you about how God used a wrong assumption. In Haman's mind, driven by pride. 
verse 6. Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And you can imagine how excited he's getting. Not only do I get to put that Mordecai on a pole today, the king is going to honor me. And you know what? This wrong assumption was the root of the robust recommendations he was about to make, which were also driven by pride. As, as he gives the king this list of what to do for the man who honors the king, how to honor him, he's thinking of himself. Oh, how great this would be for me. So verse 7, Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, not just expensive clothes, something King Xerxes himself has already worn. And the horse that the king has ridden, many believe what Haman's doing is setting himself up to be next for the throne. Right? The horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. There are reliefs archaeologists have found with crowns like this on royal horses' heads. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Oh yeah, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Next, I want you to watch closely as the reversal ramps up. Verse 10. And I imagine during the first part of this, I, I, I see Haman like this. And the king said to Haman, hurry. Take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. And his head stops doing this. And then he hears the king say this, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Now imagine Haman, verse 11. I do not imagine he did this with a joyful spirit. <laughs> I see him grumbling his way through this. Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. He had to dress the man he despised in the king's garments and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. And here's how I imagine him saying it. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Can you imagine? Verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. Quite a reversal from where we were just a few short chapters ago. Verse 13 says, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And if he was looking for comfort, he came to the wrong place. Says then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, 
you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, you talk about fickle friends and family. You go back one chapter, these are, these are the people telling him to, to build the stake for, for Mordecai, right? Why did they change their tune? Well, history tells us the Persians were very superstitious. They looked at the stars, they looked at happenings around them, and they may just have looked at the events and said, it's turned on you. Or maybe, maybe the fear of God was settling on them, like we read when Joshua and the Israelites were coming to the promised land, and you read that the people had heard of a God who parted the Red Sea and parted the Jordan, and their hearts became as wax within them, fearful of the God. Whatever the case, I believe God put these words in their mouths. They spoke the truth about the dangers of coming against God's covenant people and the fact that he would protect them. Right as they're talking, the ride to recompense arrived. Verse 14 says, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feasts that Esther had prepared. When I think about this chapter, I think about a psalm. Psalm 75, verse 6. It says, No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. And I think about that, and I think about this chapter, and I think about all the many ways that God could have worked, right? He's, he's all powerful. Like he could have killed Haman before he ever took his request for that wicked decree to King Xerxes. Just cut it off at the pass, right? Or think of what he did with Belshazzar. You remember the handwriting on the wall? He could have done something like that for King Xerxes to say, hey, when Haman comes to you, don't go with this. But instead... He chose to work through the seemingly mundane, uh, a delay between two feasts, a sleepless night, and the timely choices made by humans, both faithful and wicked, in order to raise up Mordecai in the eyes of the king and begin the humiliation of Haman. How creative. How very unexpected. And I think about how God works in the seemingly mundane. This week I, I read a story that I have to share. How many of you read and or love the writings of Charles Spurgeon? Oh my goodness. I was so excited when my parents began their move from Ohio. My dad said, we don't want to haul too much stuff. I got this five-volume set of all of Charles Spurgeon's sermons. Do you want it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Any of you have that set? It's green. It's about this tall. We have an interesting discussion at our house every time books come home because we have a lot. I, I know a lot of pastors that have retired and they say, want some books? And I always say yes. We have 11 bookshelves, seven of them in our garage and four in di different rooms in the house. And we've reached an agreement at this point. Anytime new ones come in, some old ones have to go out. We're... <laughs> But I was so excited because this is a man that preaches the truth of God's word in a, in a way that really touches down in your life. But what I never knew 
And I don't know if you know, is how did Charles Spurgeon come to know the Lord as his own Savior? That's what I read this week, and a man named Jeff Thomas helped me with this story. And as you listen to it, I want you to think about how God used the seemingly mundane to bring it about. When Charles Spurgeon was just 10 years old, he was thinking about spiritual things, and he started realizing his guilt before God, that he had a sinful nature. And at one point in his journey, as he wrestled with this, there was a period of his life where he was even tempted toward atheism, not believing in God at all. But I want to fast forward five years to when he was 15 years old, January 16, 1850. This 15-year-old this is in Colchester, England. He's walking on his way to a congregational chapel. But the snow is coming down in, in buckets and it's a long walk to that chapel, so he decides to turn off early. He goes down a side lane and came to what is called the Primitive Methodist Church. I don't know much about Primitive Methodists. One author said they sang their praises so loud you would always leave with a headache. And I was talking with Aaron earlier. Hey, that's pretty cool, right? I got a headache after I'm yelling at sports games. Why not after I've been praising so hard on Sunday morning? He got there, and there were 12 or 15 people present. It had been snowing, and even the, the preacher failed to arrive be, because of the weather. So there was a man in the crowd. Spurgeon described him as a thin-looking man that stepped up and kind of impromptu went to the pulpit. Somebody's got to preach, right? And Spurgeon says he announced his text as Isaiah 45, 22, where God says, Look unto me. And be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And Spurgeon writes, he didn't have much else to say, so he kept coming back to the text. And Spurgeon said, I'm thankful he did, because the text was all that was needed. The man did say a few other things that morning. He said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A child can look. And he looked out at the crowd of 12 or 15, and he said, Many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. And then he began to speak as though the words of Jesus I am on the tree, dying for sinners. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend into heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. And then he looked up at that dozen or so people, and he pointed at Charles Spurgeon, and he said, Young man, you look very miserable. And what Spurgeon wrote later, he said it was a good blow struck right home. He was miserable. The preacher went on. He said, you will always be miserable if you do not obey this text. And he said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Spurgeon says, I did look and I found salvation. 
by looking to Jesus Christ. The clouds departed in my life. The darkness rolled away. And as he walked home down that snowy road, he thought about the words of David, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Much later in his life, he would write this, I thank God that I owe my conversion to Christ, to an unknown person who certainly was no minister in the ordinary acceptation of the term, but who could say this much, look unto Christ and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. And I love what Jeff Thomas wrote about that day. Humanly speaking, it was the wrong weather, the wrong church, and the wrong preacher. But that's not how God viewed it at all. He used a snowy day to bring Charles Spurgeon to salvation. They say, what's our response as we close, like to a God who, who works in these mysterious ways and the seemingly mundane? Well, first, I think every believer in Jesus Christ, we ought to leave here praising him for his great creativity, his thoughtfulness in our lives, the, the intimacy that it must take to, to plan that for, for us as individuals. So praise. What about expectation? Going out like, what will he use in my life this week? Listen, we may not always see it, but if you're like me, you have seen it at some point. Just go out every day. What's he going to use today? Praise, expectation, and, and how about trust? I trust this God who works even in the seemingly mundane and yet I know that last one is a hard one especially for those of us who like to control things how many of us struggle when things are not within our control let's be honest <laughs> okay how do we wrestle with that I don't like it but I'm being told to trust God why well, I, I like the words of Paul Tripp an author who spent time with many folks going through things in the role as a Christian counselor. And just recently, he put out on Facebook, it was so timely, something that I think would help us wrestle with this. And when, when he started writing, he said, one of the problems we have is, even as believers sometimes, we wrongly believe that when things are out of our control, then they are absolutely out of control. That's not true according to what we've been learning about God, but, but what do we do with it? How do we process those moments? How do we trust? And he suggested two circles, one smaller circle within a larger circle. The smaller circle within the larger circle, he called the circle of responsibility. Those are the things we are called to. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You look to God's word and see what we're called to. And you could sum it up as, hey, living Christ's life by faith wherever I find myself. In my home as a, a husband, father, wife, mother, child, at my workplace, in my community, in my world. Living the life of Christ by faith. And our role within that circle of responsibility is to obey Say, yes, Lord, help me live the life of Christ by faith. Side note, here it's been well said by many. We would do well to focus a lot more on that circle because so often our minds love to go to the things we don't know. When if we would just spend more time focusing on what we do know, 
<laughs> we get a lot further on down the road, but there's still that circle of things, the larger circle called the circle of concern, right? And he defines that as the things in our lives or our world that weigh on us. And there are many of them. These are the things that are not within our responsibility or even our ability to fix. And, and you could trace this from the most trivial things to the more serious things. You cannot control whether the field goal kicker on the Browns makes an extra point and saves the game for you. That doesn't matter a lot, but that ruins some people's whole weeks because <laughs> they want to control that. Okay, that's trivial, but you get a little more serious. Okay, you cannot control that person at work that is a pain in the backside of you and everyone else that works with them, even though you've tried and they've tried. Okay, let's get a little, little deeper. A loved one has a disease and you've prayed in faith knowing that God, I know you could heal this if it was your choice. You've, you've gotten all the medical help that you know to get, but that disease ravages on. Maybe it's, it's a spouse that no matter what you try, the walls are going up and they're running further and further away from you. There's a coldness and you don't know why and you cannot control that. What do we do with those things? He says we entrust them to God. What does Peter say? Cast your cares on the Lord for he cares for you. And he says we got to be very careful which circle we put the events of our lives in because when you take things from the circle of concern and wrongly put them in your circle of responsibility, you know what happens? That's when we start to fear and worry and fret and we start to get angry and bitter and dominating toward all of those people around us. So what do we do? I, I like where he closes. He says some things... God has not told us and never will. But the more you come to know him, the deeper your rest becomes. God will not always give us the answers we want, but he always gives us himself. So walk down the hallway of your confusing life today and say, there are many things I don't understand, but I know my father's in control. I know he is wise and good, and I know he loves me. Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this precious book. Uh, because if, if the lives of those gathered here today are like mine, on occasion we see the, the shock and awe. You work in just a, a, a ground-shaking way in our lives. But, but most of our lives, many days are spent in the seemingly mundane. It gives us great hope to know that you are at work even there, that you are sovereign even there, that you are wise even there, that you are loving, that you are good. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us who are believers to leave here just with hearts full of praise for the infinite varieties of ways that you work in our world, in our lives, hearts of expectation for the day and the week ahead as we walk with you in hearts of trust. And as I think about Charles Spurgeon's own story and how he ended up in that primitive Methodist church that morning and you used it for him to come to you, I think of anyone who 
who may have found their way here this morning through circumstances equally mundane. But I think about what Paul says, that behold, now is the day of salvation. Perhaps you drew them here this morning for the same purpose you drew Charles Spurgeon to church, to draw them to the Savior who died on the cross for their sins and rose again. Look to him if that's you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, as we prepare to close with our offering this morning, I pray it would be one more act of worship to our sovereign, almighty, creative, wonderful, wise, and loving Father. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.